is Bloomberg Surveillance. Title II says if a big bank gets into trouble, the people have put their money there, other than the insured deposit, you will expect to take losses. OPEC has ceased to exist as an effective cartel. The action has shifted to American frackers. There's a large amount of debt out there, and there's very little room in most countries, with the exception of China, for more fiscal stimulus. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Super Tuesday nationwide. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. Bloomberg 960, the Bay Area. Bloomberg 1200, Boston. Bloomberg 1130 in New York. And here in Washington, 99.1 FM, we say good morning to all of Washington and Baltimore. And on Sirius XM, Channel 119 across Canada and across America, it will be a most unusual day. I can't say enough about our plans for coverage here, led by Marty Schenker from Washington on government and economics today, uh, leading up to, with all due respect, Mark Halpert and John Heilman. Uh, look for that tonight, a special broadcast to make you smarter about what are presumed, and I mean presumed, landslides for Secretary Clinton and Mr. Trump. We'll see how that plays out, particularly in the great state of Texas. Right now, we need to do the great state of the foreign exchange market. The Forex Brief brought to you by Interactive Brokers winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com slash Forex. A churn uh, to the markets, the euro, 108.75, the yen, 113.04 as well. Michael's got some news out as well. Yeah, we have a headline crossing the Bloomberg Professional Terminal here. Uh, Honeywell is no longer going to pursue accommodation with United Technologies. So uh, they're giving up on that effort. And that's an interesting backstory from our, our work with Michael Holland and Peter Arnett of Stern AG particularly. Both of them focused, Mike, on how the Honeywell board would react to the spirited effort to go back. Both were rather pessimistic about the immediate acquisition of Honeywell acquiring UTX. Yes. Uh, we will well, – it says um – Honeywell disagrees with UTX's characterization of the deal risk, but um, apparently United Technologies unwilling to negotiate, yeah. according to Honeywell, concerned about, I guess, antitrust well, there or, it is. or other possibilities. We have no choice. We can't negotiate. We must go to David Wilson and look at the equity markets this morning. David, good morning. Good morning, Tom. You're seeing an immediate reaction in the shares of both uh, United Technologies and Honeywell to the news that uh, these companies are no longer uh, potential merger targets. Uh, United Technologies is down 4% in early trading and Honeywell up about 3%. Fiat Chrysler is up 4%. The carmaker's U.S. sales rose 11.8% last month. That was faster than analysts expected. The average projection calling for growth of 9.2%. Sales figures from Ford Motor and General Motors are due later today, so the auto stocks will be worth watching. Uh, shares of Macau casino owners are higher. After the Chinese city said February revenue fell just one-tenth of a percent, that was actually the best performance in 21 months. Analysts expected to drop at 2% on average. So you've got Las Vegas Sands higher by 2%, MGM Resorts up 2.5%, Wind Resorts up 3%, and Melco Crown also about 3% mm -hmm. higher in early trading. Medtronic down 4.5%. The medical device maker's earnings failed to beat the average.
average estimate in the Bloomberg survey for the first time in five quarters. Medtronic's revenue trailed analyst average projections as well. Marathon oil down 4.5%. The energy producer raised $1.1 billion by selling 145 million shares, equivalent to an 18% stake. Marathon following the lead of Devon Energy, Hess, and other oil and gas producers by going to the stock market for cash. A couple more, please. Sure. Intercontinental Exchange down 1%. The owner of the New York Stock Exchange is exploring an offer for the London Stock Exchange, which is in merger talks with Deutsche Börse. ICE confirmed a report from Bloomberg News yesterday about the deliberations. And uh, why not Sun Edison down 26%? The solar plant developer delayed its annual report to U.S. regulators. Sun Edison attributed the postponement to a probe uh, into accusations of financial wrongdoing right. made by former executives as well as current and former employees. David Wilson, thank you so much. We digress now from our political economics of the morning to talk Fed and monetary policy. Thirty-five years ago, he was in the sub-sub-sub-sub-basement of the Fed with the wages, prices, and productivity section of the Division of Research. This means he's the only guy we know, Mike, who won't blather on about the dots. <laughs> well, they remodeled the building. He got to move up a little David bit. David Stockton <laughs> knows the machinery of our Federal Reserve System. He, uh, he ended up as director of the Division of Research and Statistics at uh, the Board of Governors. It now works for the Peterson Institute. You would have put together uh, or uh, helped put together and present the Teal Book, uh, the, uh, the, the Fed's compilation of how things are going in the economy and the markets, along with various possible monetary policy options uh, that they go over at at every meeting. So give us a a teal book look at uh, the economy right now, particularly the idea that uh, the markets are seeing something that we're not seeing in the data. So I think, obviously, that is the key question that the Fed is going to be struggling with at this point. You know, I think the issue is the tension between the relatively uh, well-maintained growth in employment and improvements in the labor market, which look now to be pretty broad-based. And while there was some uh, weakening of the economy in the fourth quarter, things look like they're bouncing back uh, to a 2% range here in the current quarter. I think the Fed is going to be both concerned about the consequences of the financial tightening that's taken place since their December meeting, um, but not necessarily yet buying into a story that we, in fact, have gone over the edge and that we're facing some serious downside risks. Well, the the markets seem to have price something like that in. Can they be a a self-fulfilling prophecy? It can be. And in some sense, I think you could take a look at uh, uh, President Dudley's comments yesterday in China, where he indicated that uh, if these uh, factors, if this recent tightening is going to persist, uh, he would be marking down his forecast even more than he already has. So I think there can be some self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, on the other hand, if some of the ri- some of the downside risks that have currently been uh, built into financial market expectations and financial market prices prove to have been too pessimistic, then in fact we could see some brightening in the financial conditions that would be reinforced by improving economic data, and in right. fact that would put the Fed back on a path of uh, its gradual tightening. The word we're using a lot is uncertainty. Chairman Greenspan used the word. Vice Chairman Fisher recently used the word. You're the king of degrees of confidence. Do you have confidence in our guesstimate of our uncertainty? So that's a good question. You know, I try to avoid always saying now is more uncertain than it's ever been before. Because economists are almost always saying that. Yes. 
But in this case, it might actually be true. I think we're facing a broader range of uncertainties, not just economic uncertainties and not just economic uncertainties abroad, but also geopolitical uncertainties uh, that we see, the geopolitical uncertainties in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East. I think all of that is, is weighing on, on uh, certainly business sentiment, less so on consumer sentiment, remains, which remains relatively well-maintained. Um, but I do think businesses in particular, you can see it in the investment data themselves, just very reluctant to commit to large-scale capital expenditures at this point, given the uncertainties that they're facing. Yeah, Mike, we heard that from Chairman Greenspan. Yeah, well, you, you are also uh, uh, the uh, chief macroeconomist at uh, L.H. Meyer, Larry Meyer's uh, firm. When you talk to clients, what is it that they're afraid of? Why are they holding back? What needs to change for them to start investing? So I think uh, a, a couple of things. One would be some clarification, certainly uh, on the geopolitical front, that there aren't any major uh, uh, breaks here that would cause some significant problems. And, of course, those have been reinforced recently by the uh, uh, migrants in Europe. But I think uh, in addition to that, uh, there is a general sense that uh, concern that, in fact, China is weakening more than people currently anticipate and that that could have major spillovers to the global economy. And I think they right now are reluctant uh, in that environment with the downside risks that might be associated with not just for China but spillovers to emerging markets right. and then feedback in terms of right. uh, our own financial markets. Uh, in the time that we've got left with you, uh, you work with Lawrence Meyer, the former governor, his wonderful book, A Term at the Fed, I tell every kid uh, to read. It was a time of a different communication. Is there too much communication now in your world of the Fed? So um, I would say there's not necessarily too much in quantity. I think communication is always good. But unfortunately, in terms of the quality of that communication, I think, is suffered some. I do think the Fed is uh, not sort of bringing – I think communication could be reinforcing a sense of where the uncertainties were. But instead, we have many different uh, speakers to the Fed that are, I think, perhaps increasing the uncertainty about okay. the outlook for policy, then reducing it, or at least highlighting where the uncertainties are going to be. Well, we want to continue this discussion with you. Uh, David Stockton uh, with us with the Peterson Institute for International Economics and uh, also with L.H. Meyer uh, and to be direct and esteemed uh, analysis of the American uh, economy. Futures up 13, Dow Futures up 87 this morning. Um, a quiescent tape. Maybe that's because politics is front and center. I promise we're going to talk to David Stockton. I don't think we'll get into the America's politics. Can you somehow get Super Tuesday into it, Mike? Uh, there's a challenge. There's a challenge. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get politics into our discussion with David Stockton. Again, futures up 13. All right, let's check in with Michael Barr now and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Today, voters in several states are heading to the polls to vote in primaries for Super Tuesday. Democrat Bernie Sanders already has voted in his hometown of Burlington, Vermont, saying if voter turnout is high, we are going to do well. Frontrunner Donald Trump says it is the media that keeps controversy going, involving former KKK leader David Duke, who has told people to support Trump. Trump says he has disavowed Duke several times. Bloomberg will have nonstop Super Tuesday coverage throughout the night, starting with a special edition of With All Due Respect, starting at 5 p.m. Wall Street time. 
The United States has asked the U.N. Security Council to schedule a vote today on a resolution that would set new sanctions against North Korea. It's in response to Pyongyang's latest nuclear test. President Obama will meet later today with Republican Senate leaders who have vowed to block his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. Global News, 24 hours a day. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Uh, Michael Barr, thanks so much. Uh, futures up 13, Dow Futures up 91. This Super Tuesday from Washington, Bloomberg Surveillance. Market Driver is brought to you by your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer. No matter what the weather, Mercedes-Benz 4 all-wheel drive brings peace of mind and driving confidence. Visit your Mercedes-Benz Tri-State dealer for a test drive today. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Interactive Brokers and CME Group. If you're looking for global futures contracts with low trading costs, look no further. Interactive Brokers is the industry leader. Learn more at interactivebrokers.com slash CME Group. The automakers are reporting their U.S. sales figures for February. Ford had just out, saying sales rose more than 20%, beating analyst estimates. Nissan also beat, as did Fiat Chrysler. U.S. stock index futures, meanwhile, higher. S&P E-mini futures up 13 points. Dow E-mini futures up 88. And Nasdaq E-mini futures up 31. DAX in Germany is up 1.5%. Ten-year Treasury up 2.30 seconds. The yield 1.72%. NYMEX crude oil up 9 tenths percent, or 29 cents to 34.04 a barrel. Comex gold up six tenths percent or seven dollars sixty cents at twelve forty two twenty an ounce. The euro a dollar oh eight seven one. The yen one thirteen point oh eight. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Thanks so much, Karen. Greatly appreciate it. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance from Washington this Super Tuesday. We welcome all of you. Right now, we just talked about econometrics, about the greater economy and the macroeconomics of the nation. Let's talk about the statistical analysis of who's going to vote. Tom Bonnier is with Clarity and has been instrumental. Clarity Campaign Labs. But now uh, Target Smart. Just Target, Target Smart, Target right. Smart. I can't keep track of the, the names. I mean, we're switching from progressive back to liberal as well. But we're going to talk now to someone who actually tries to figure out what we're going to do. How is the world now different than the simple days of the Gallup poll? It's it's really infinitely different in so many ways. Um, you know, when we look at, at the really the last two presidential campaigns, the, when we look at especially President Obama's campaigns, but also John McCain, uh, Mitt Romney, presidential campaigns have become billion-dollar startups that they ramp up in no time, and they're very high stakes. And so... Uh, to go along with that, there's been uh, more accountability in how these campaigns spend their money, and a big part of that is data. Uh, it's data-driven decision-making, um, and, and really the sort of data that is available to campaigns today uh, is, is infinitely different from what campaigns used 20, 30 years ago, where really they relied on relatively small sample surveys, long surveys, but they, they would dig deep into messaging and they, they deal with the overall strategy, but they really didn't deal with the micro aspects of campaigns, really because they didn't have to, because campaigns didn't really have the capacity nor the ability well, to communicate on a one-to-one basis like we do now. Now, now you can, and you've worked for Democrats for years. Uh, tell me who votes. When Hillary Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders face off in a state, um, you know who's going to vote. That's right. And, and who is, whose supporters are actually getting out and voting? 
Well, uh, so we have an entire process that we go through where we model the electorate, and we actually apply probabilities to every single voter, 191 million registered voters in this country, and we have a 0 to 100 probability score assigned to every voter on the likelihood that they're going to vote in both the primary election and the general election. Now, generally in these primaries, uh, the people who vote tend to be older. Uh, their people have voted more in past elections. And really, uh, the pattern that we've seen in the Democratic primary, at least uh, thus far, has been fairly standard. In, in the 2008 primary, you saw more younger, uh, more African-American, more Latino voters participate in the primaries. Uh, and, and, and that pattern is holding, for the most part, there's nothing altogether unusual about the turnout pattern. Bernie Sanders has in, encouraged some more younger voters to participate in some of the early states thus far, mm -hmm. but really not enough to make a substantial difference. So you get a call tomorrow morning from Donald Trump's people, and they say, we love what you do. We know you're on the other side of the fence. We need you to consult him to tell us what to do. What's your advice to a guy who, it appears to me, hasn't done much data collection? Mm. Well, 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 first of all, I'd, I'd, I'd likely tell him to take a hike because <laughs> not, not your side of the fence, yeah. <laughs> not my side of the fence. Uh, the, the Trump campaign is really fascinating in that uh, he is running one of the least sophisticated campaigns in terms of data, technology, uh, analytics, yet he continues to win. It's, it's a very gut instinct-driven campaign. He's obviously a very smart businessman. He can walk into a room and he can know immediately what people want to hear. And the room he's in now is the Republican primary. And so he's saying things that those people want to hear. I think we'd hear something very different in the general election. Uh, but he, he, he has shunned the, the traditional concept of even polling, something the campaigns have been doing for decades, where he somewhat famously said, uh, why should we poll when the media is doing it for us anyhow? Uh, so, so my advice as a Democrat would be to keep doing what you're doing because he's really wreaking havoc on the Republican. <laughs> well, uh, that's where uh, I want to go next. Um, if Trump is a nominee, there's a lot of talk about what happens down ballot. What do your mm -hmm. numbers suggest? Do you have enough information, enough data to be able to make a forecast? Well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll add this caveat at the outset that that Donald Trump in, in this election year has made a, a lot of very smart pundits look very stupid thus far. I don't think anyone would have guessed or predicted that he See, would be where he is us. now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I could look anywhere and, and, and be accurate without even it myself. So, uh, so uh, in, in terms of predicting the impact, uh, uh, smart money would say that he would have a catastrophic impact on Republicans up and down the ticket. Uh, and, and, and hearing your, your guests earlier today, Vin Weber, uh, Secretary Cohen, it, it's, it's really remarkable to hear people like that running so far away from but, but the, the House presumptive be nominee. isolated, given the way the districts have been gerrymandered? Gerrymandering is a significant issue, and we could talk about that for hours. It's, it's, it's likely at the root of a lot of the problems that this country is facing right now, and so that does insulate uh, a number of districts against the wave, but waves do happen. We saw them happen, that happen in 2010. Uh, we've seen that happen in 2006 uh, when Democrats took the House back. So uh, it, this is really an unusual uh, election year we're headed into. So I, I think all bets are off, and that's why you're seeing so many uh, nervous uh, members of Congress 
on that side of the aisle. I didn't even have time to talk to you today, Tom Bonnier, about the strange transformation from from liberal to progressive and back to liberal <laughs> as well. Please, can we speak to you again sometime soon? I would love that. Thanks so much for when you drove Thanks in today. Thanks for having me. Listening on 99.1 FM, Washington, and Baltimore. We've got a lot to talk about on Super Tuesday, about our economics, about our politics. Trying to give you that this morning, a, a little less hysteria and a more uh, a take towards information that you can use to help form your uh, decisions. Futures up 14, Dow futures up 94. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. We are counting down to the opening bell, brought to you by the Jeep Grand Cherokee, the most awarded SUV ever. The Grand Cherokee continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, I'm Karen Moscow, and the opening bell brought to you by SEI. Imagine a global operating platform designed to deliver a differentiated and technologically rich investor experience. Find out how SEI can help you succeed at SEIC.com slash imagine. And stocks are higher at the open. The S&P 500 is up six-tenths percent, or 11 points, to 1943. Dow Jones Industrial Average up four-tenths percent, or 71 points, to 16,587. And the Nasdaq up nine-tenths percent, or 40 points to 4598. Ten-year Treasury up 132nd, the yield 1.72 percent, yield on the two-year 0.77 percent. NYMEX crude oil little changed at $33.75 a barrel. COMEX gold up half percent or $6.70 to 12.41 an ounce. The euro $1.0855, the yen 113.18. Tom and Mike. Thank you so much. Uh, Bloomberg surveillance from the nation's capital on a Super Tuesday from our news bureau in Washington. Good morning, 99.1 FM Washington, Bloomberg 1130 New York in Boston, in San Francisco. And good morning across the south, what is it, like the SEC, the Southern, the Southeastern Southeastern Conference. The Southeastern Conference, which is the state of the nation. I'm not a football uh, fan, but anyways, it is the SEC-like Super Tuesday. It would be nice, Mike, to know what the economy is actually doing. Well, so much attention uh, this Super Tuesday focused on the South and centered around the state of Georgia. Professor Rajiv Dawan at Georgia State University is the director of the Economic Forecasting Center there at the uh, Robinson School of Business in Atlanta. So he's sort of at the center of the uh, SEC primary universe, and we wanted to talk with him about what the economy is like there right now and why we are seeing people uh, so enthusiastic about someone like Donald Trump. Um, good morning to you, Professor Dawan. Uh, describe good the morning. economy of the Southeast and how it's playing out for people maybe on the lower socio end of the socioeconomic scale. You know, the economy in the Southeast has a very big, you know, spectrum, like a broad spectrum. If you look at Texas, it's not doing very well now, and we all know it's because of the shale oil gas prices being down. And on the other hand, we have Florida and Georgia, which are doing very well because we didn't have the shale gas revolution. So we were insulated from it. So we are suffering from the global headwinds a little bit because we have the port activity. 
We have manufacturing over here, cars and autos, and we also have a lot of tourism. Well, we think uh, in in terms of the South often as uh, you know the the leftovers of the textile industry, that sort of thing. Uh, we don't focus as much on manufacturing. How inaccurate is the general view of the southern economy? You know, this was the view of the early 90s when the textile mills were being closed down and they were very big proportion of the manufacturing over here. But the manufacturing has changed quite a bit now. We have a lot more paper and pulp products, as we call the forestry. We also have a lot of food processing. And we also have a lot of uh, auto manufacturing plants, both here in Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina. I mean, you name it, they are here. So the foreign auto manufacturers have come and put up their base in the southeast of the U.S. because it's a right-to-work state and they don't have too much unionization. And when you start from scratch, you can have the more basic productivity results. You know. What is your take on the politics that we've observed, oh, in the last two weeks, even four weeks, across the Super Tuesday states? You witnessed it personally in Georgia. I understand major candidates populating Texas and moving on to some of the northern states as well. Your take on the politics, the polarity of the argument uh, as you look at a better economics in the South? Well, the thing is that we, we tend to think that it's the blue-collar worker affected by the global demand and supply, the global hijinks in the manufacturing that's going to be the so-called Trump supporter or the other ones. But I think what I have felt it in the last few years, and I go around the country also making speeches, is that there is an angst among university-educated people, too. Because these days, when you get a university degree, there is no guarantee you're going to get a job. And you feel like you're getting outsourced to the other countries. And when that feeling comes in, any populist candidate who is coming up and telling you he's going to do, he or she's going to do something is going to be a viable candidate. And that's what I'm feeling. You know, it's the solid middle class that's feeling that my kids may not have the same opportunities as I had because of the so-called globalization. What is... Uh, pay like? What is income inequality like in that? Re- I realize it's a very diverse region, from Virginia to Texas in the in the primaries today. But uh, in in general, is it uh, follow the same trend as the rest of the country, where pay seems to have stagnated and income inequality has widened significantly? I don't have the exact data, but I would say it's most probably most likely that maybe a little bit different here and there. Like every state is a little bit different. But I'm saying to you is that. That may have been the story 10 years ago, the income inequality between the blue-collar workers and the top one. But now it's the solid middle class that is very anxious. Their income gains are not enough to keep up with the way they want to live or the way they want to do their spending on their kids' education or other Mm -hmm. things. And they're feeling that they don't have those resources. What's going on? What's wrong? You turn around. And you always suddenly say the first scapegoat that comes to your mind is globalization, and I don't blame them. I mean, I was looking at the data. How much money did the U.S. corporations spend on their stock buybacks last year, in the last couple of years? More than a trillion each year. How much money have they spent, I'm a macroeconomist, on doing investment on information processing equipment and R&D and intellectual property? Less than that. And if we don't do investment, there's no jobs tomorrow. 
So that's the Tell angst me. that the middle class yeah. is feeling. Yeah. We have a stereotype of the expansion of the South, and it doesn't go back to Clark Gable and uh, Gone with the Wind, but even in the last 20 years, we carry our stereotypes. What is your singular message about what Atlanta has to do to compete? I mean, Atlanta is actually competing very well. The growth rate over here has been pretty good. It had a very big downturn after the Great Recession because we right. had a lot of overbuilding. We had a lot of, which, you know, we were building 70,000 homes, and our job growth was not even 50,000. When I started in this business, the rule of thumb was that you build two homes, you build, you build one home for two jobs. We're building four to one at that point. So we had an overbuilding. We didn't have a price crash. We had an overbuilding crash. So it took a while for us to recover. Hospitality is our big driver over here. And, of course, we have the biggest airport and the Delta Airline. So we have to suffer from the gyrations of the global economy a lot more now than they did it 15, 20 years ago. Raji, thank you so much. Raji Dewan, uh, the Economic Forecasting Center uh, for the Mac Robinson College of Business, Georgia State uh, University. Mike, yeah. I know you brought uh, Dr. Uh, Dewan to us. That was really great. Yeah, uh, uh, and today the, uh, the SEC primary, the states from the south voting in the uh, Super Tuesday primary, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, You're putting Vermont Tennessee, in well? Texas, and Virginia. We're going to leave Vermont uh, to, yeah. the, to the northeast in the maple syrup yeah, GM, primary. GM going opposite of some of the other Everybody else news. has come in strong. General Motors, February, U.S. auto sales are down 1.5%. The forecast was they would be up 5.1%. There's, there's like a weather thing going on in a presidential. It's hard you know, to, well, everybody else has, has been strong. Perhaps there was just a, a shift in market share during the yeah. month. Hard to tell. Uh, but we have seen an awful lot of cars sold so far. Michael McKee and Tom Keene in Washington, and we will be here tomorrow as well to pick up the debris. Many people looking for landslides for Clinton and Trump. Uh, futures, uh, the Dow rather, up 78. All right, time to check in now with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Michael? Mike, Tom, thank you very much. Voters are heading to the polls today for the big Super Tuesday primaries and caucuses. Republican Donald Trump and Democrat Hillary Clinton enter today as frontrunners for their respective presidential nominations for the chance to build nearly an insurmountable lead. Democrat Bernie Sanders has already voted in his home state of Vermont. After a lot of deliberation, I know that Bernie Sanders here might not have at least one vote. I was working on my wife, but I think I probably got two. Bloomberg will have non-stop Super Tuesday coverage throughout the night, starting with a special edition of With All Due Respect, starting at 5 p.m. Wall Street time. President Obama plans to sit down today with Senate Republican leaders who are vowing to block his Supreme Court nominee. The president says he will nominate a successor to late Justice Antonin Scalia within weeks. Attorney General Loretta Lynch is calling on tech companies and the government to find common ground. Lynch, in prepared remarks later today for the RSA Cybersecurity Conference in San Francisco, says we do have to be engaged in open dialogue so we can draw upon each other's resources. The speech comes after a California judge ruled that Apple should come up with software to hack into the iPhone of the San Bernardino shooter. The December incident left 14 people dead. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus from around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Michael Barr, thank you so much. Uh, good morning. Bloomberg 99.1 FM in Washington and nationwide this Super Tuesday. It's Bloomberg Surveillance.
One of the big questions of this election year, how will Hispanics react to some of the things said on the campaign trail? Jose Parra is in the business of selling politicians to Hispanics. We'll ask him. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSPDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. Ford Motors light vehicle sales soared 20% in February, while Fiat Chrysler automobiles deliveries climbed 12%. Both exceeded analyst estimates thanks to payback from January's storm, promotions tied to the President's Day holiday, and continued strong demand for sport utility vehicles and pickups. Nissan also beat while GM sales fell 1.5% last month, and that missed analyst estimates. U.S. stocks, meanwhile, are rising amid investor optimism about central bank support. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P 500 up half percent or nine points in 1941. Dow Jones Industrial Average up four tenths percent or 67 points to 16,583. The Nasdaq up six tenths percent or 27 points to 4585. Ten-year Treasury little change yield 1.73 percent yield on the two-year 0.77 percent. NYMEX crude oil down 1% or 31 cents to 33.42 a barrel. COMEX gold up half percent or $6.50 to 12.4070 an ounce. The euro, $1.0858, the yen 113.06. And Honeywell International saying it would no longer pursue a combination with United Technologies due to the target company's unwillingness to negotiate. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Hey, Karen, thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is Super Tuesday from our news bureau in Washington. One of our themes today is to speak to people with experience, people that have linked the strategy and tactics of our economic politics or political economics. Jose Parr has done that. He's worked with Senator Reed of Nevada, among others, of actually doing something that a lot of people 30 years ago weren't sure was possible, which is organize, get out, and do the Hispanic vote. We could go for three hours today, based on what Vin Weber said earlier of Hispanic stronghold Minnesota, about the importance of the world of the Latino and the Hispanic uh, vote. Give us the state of the Latino vote after what we learned in 2008 and 2012. Well, 2008 and 2010 were also um, were seminal years. Uh, it's obviously been growing uh, by by leaps and bounds. Uh, participation is not is not where it should be. If it were, and this could be a litmus test year for that. Uh, for example, in 2012, you had about 23 million eligible Hispanic voters. Close to 12 million turned out to the polls. So still underperforming. But still, were, they played a decisive role in states like Florida and uh, Nevada to help President Obama win. And in 2010, uh, we actually had presidential-type turnout to, uh, in Nevada to back Senator Reid. And according to the firm Latino decisions, Senator Reid won 90% of the vote that year. Interestingly, if you want to compare that year, 2010, to, to what's occurring right now, the rhetoric was very much very similar. Sharon Angle... Uh, Senator Reed's um, point at the moment was um, uh, basing her campaign on immigration, and she spent about a third of her uh, TV budget on anti-immigrant ads, and that contrast between her and Senator Reed really helped turn the Latino vote out. Well, when we speak of the Latino vote, I mean, it's 
people from Mexico, people from the Caribbean, people from South America. You've got immigrant, recent immigrants, and you've got families who've been here for generations. So what is the Latino slash Hispanic vote? Are there issues that are common to all, or do we make a mistake by lumping everybody together? Well, it is definitely a moving target. And no, anybody who tells you that they've had the Hispanic vote figured out, um, they're, they're selling you a bunch of goods um, because it is a moving target, something you need to be measuring all the time and something you need to be – and any public you need to be listening to constantly in order to figure out where they are. You have huge differences between Florida, for example, and Nevada, even in Florida. In Florida, you need to mark your target, for example. You need to talk to the Colombians. You need to talk to Nicaraguans. Right, right, you right. need to talk to the Cubans. And each one has different radio stations, for example, that they listen to. Um, How can Mr. Trump do so well against a departed Bush and a President Rubio in that state, given the fabulous diversity and Florida advantage? A lot of Americans are asking that question. Well, I think the biggest thing here is that we're talking about um, a fractured GOP. Um, and you're talking about a fraction of the GOP, which is a majority, but not a, a, a um, uh, big majority of the, it's not 50% plus, of the GOP field or of GOP voters. And uh, I think that's what's happening there. And he's turning out, I bet you, a lot of people in northern Florida. Uh, and rural parts of Florida, which are very similar to Alabama or Georgia uh, in its uh, demographic makeup. Are there, is there a, um, a Latino vote that is committed to one side or another? Because the Republican argument coming out of 2012 was we need to appeal more because our issues, conservative issues, religious issues, would appeal to Hispanics. On an economic basis, the Democrats say we can compete. Is the vote still up for grabs, or has it hardened in one side or the other? Not after what Trump has done. And uh, there's been an unfortunate trend uh, within the GOP, which Trump, in reality, what he did was harness this trend and use his megaphone as a media figure to project it, because this type of language we've been hearing from Steve King, from Mo Brooks, uh, from Jan Brewer, and the, the Arizona law of, um, of 2010, which, by the way, Marco Rubio back to the time, which meant that if you look Latino or sound Latino, you could be right. stopped. And that, started, that turned immigration into an identity issue. The background here for Washington, and we've heard this from 99.1 FM Washington listeners over the last few days, is Robert Kagan's important op-ed in the Washington Post. He is at the Brookings Institution, and he just wrote a basic theme of what you address about uh, the GOP. Um, the president is not only wrong, but also anti-American, un-American, non-American, and his policies, though barely distinguishable from those of previous liberal Democrats, such as Michael Dukakis or Mario Cuomo, are somehow representative of something subversive. Do they just lose all of the minority vote in America with that language? I mean, they've been pushing that language for a long, long time now, for at least for, for many, eight years. What was the percent of Hispanics in the Romney election for Mr. Romney? About 27 percent. And that number, and, the, and, and, and I would argue that prob- that number is probably lower because that's based on, on an exit polling, which tends to undermeasure minority communities. And we talk about uh, Donald Trump, obviously, as sort of the front runner in the Republican side. Suppose you get a Hispanic, you get uh, Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, who wrests the nomination away from him. How does that change the dynamic? 
I don't think much because what Trump has done is forced the party to tack right in its message on its tone and forced all these guys to chase him as, as far as his rhetoric. Maybe with uh, much less crass language until this weekend when mm-hmm. we saw Marco Rubio going tit for tat with uh, with Trump. But um, even Jeb Bush, who a lot of people consider a very pro-immigrant and, and somebody steeped deeply in the in, in Hispanic culture, uh, used the term anchor babies, for example, at some point. Everybody was trying to catch up to Trump. And it's going to be very hard for these guys to come back from right. that side of the side of the spectrum. But Secretary, oh, go ahead, Mike. Well, please, I was just going to say, can can uh, Secretary Clinton then take the Hispanic vote for granted? They're going to come to her. No, she cannot take the vote for granted because um, the issue with Hispanics is, and and Democrats and Republicans is not so much whether Latinos will become Republicans and vote Republican. The question is whether they will stay home, as happened in the midterm of 2014, for example. Uh, in Nevada, we went to a participation uh, among Latinos of, uh, of 27%. And we lost even a Latino uh, majority district, CD4, Interesting. in Nevada. Interesting. So turnout, turnout is the key. And I, I wrote this on Twitter the other day. Turnout is everything. And you need to give all, people. For all people. All people. And you need to give people not just a reason to vote against something, but also right. an alternative to vote no. for we would love to have you come back when we visit Washington. Thank you. Jose Parra uh, uh, with us with his perspective, working with Senator Reid of Nevada on Latino affairs. Prospero Latino is his strategic insight uh, organization. Uh, Mike, uh, we're going to go to San Francisco. It's something we've not addressed today. Uh, we're going to go to San Francisco yep. here in the next hour. Yes. Carol Masser and uh, Corey Johnson are out yep. at a cybersecurity conference. Um, they have actually – they knew that we were going to go to them because they've been reading our computer messages earlier. They, yeah. They've learned everything they need to learn about our, how, to, how to break it. The RSA uh, conference and really front and center on Apple. We know everything. And that is a major issue on Capitol Hill today uh, with uh, the hearings on Apple. Yeah. Carol, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, we do know everything. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is all about uh, keeping our digital world safe. So you've got Google here, Adobe here. You've got the car makers here. And we're going to be talking to some of them, just some of the initiatives that are underway to protect uh, everything that's uh, going on in the digital space. So uh, kind of fascinating. And you're right. It's front and center up on Capitol Hill today uh, with Apple there and uh, also the Pentagon talking about some of the cybersecurity initiatives they need. So we're going to cover it all here from uh, San Francisco. Carol Master, thank you uh, so much. Again, Super Tuesday programming all day on Bloomberg Radio to give you perspective. We hope away from the hysteria. And, of course, important programming tonight with Mark Halpern and uh, John Heilman with all due respect uh, as we begin to look at the returns from the many Super Tuesday states. The good news for me and Mike, we'll be here tomorrow morning to pick up the debris of uh, the various elections and to give you perspective forward on the nation's very political economics. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Surveillance.